I think actually at school, I realized that I didn't fit schooling and that platform. Education's great, but I don't think there's just one form of education. I don't think university's for everybody. Um, I think we can learn so much outside of schooling today. If we have a superpower as humans, I think creativity is it um, in terms of being able to visualize something and bring it to life and change the way the world currently operates. You know, self-doubt is something that I struggle with on a, on a daily basis. It's not a nice feeling, but it does lead to um, a positive direction. So I think if you don't have that level of self-questioning and, um, and questioning where you are good enough, I don't think you're going to have that growth and development. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Welcome back, lovely neighborhood. I love jumping between industries, age groups, and even continents with our guests, and in fact, try to do so from week to week, separating guests that are a bit similar, even if only to satisfy my own curiosity about the many different ways we all tick. I always say everyone you meet knows something that you don't. And I love the feeling of my mind stretching from hearing the way others see and experience the world. And I hope that you guys do too. While last week, Farah spoke of faraway places, this week's guest is homegrown, but has exported the Aussie experience through a booming business described as Aussie made globally loved. Blair James co-founded self-tanning disruptor Bondi Sands in 2012 to capture everything that makes Aussie summers iconic through what has grown now to over 50 products in a whopping 30,000 retailers worldwide. Of course, the business's huge success, continual innovation and championing of sun safety and more recently sustainability are incredibly impressive. And Blair shares so many useful tips on brand building and scaling that had me furiously taking down notes. But unsurprisingly, if you're a regular listener, I was more thrilled to explore his lesser known earlier years, including his very small country hometown and high school called, wait for it, yay, high school meant to be, and that he didn't excel in VCE, nor did he finish university, neither of which, however, have hindered where he ended up. As always, there's some hilarious fun facts in between. Nothing humanizes a person more than hearing them genuinely burst out into laughter, especially about the joys of ISO haircuts, which didn't go so well in Blair's case. As a businesswoman, but also a human, I love exploring the brains behind beloved brands, and I hope you do too. Blair James, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. (laughs) Before we kick off, I start every episode with a little icebreaker, which is just to ask everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. And particularly with people like yourself who are known for having incredible achievements and brands that are recognized globally, the surface can seem very glossy, but I hear that there have been some very down-to-earth ISO haircuts in the last few months for you. Yes. Um, yeah, I haven't had any chance to get to uh, my regular hairdresser. So my fiance Mel's been doing the hairdressing. I don't know if you call it hairdressing. It was more like a, a hack job on the first, the first attempt. Um, I've seen photos. It's a, uh, it's, it's a great time. Yeah, I, I have to take a bit of credit for probably the misdirection in terms of what I asked for. So she did went, she went I think like a, a zero, and then left literally everything on top. And it, it did look like I had a bit of a toupee going on at, at some stage. So it wasn't a great look. I was off social media for a, a number of weeks until that grew back. The second attempt was much better. So she even got the fade going. There's a, you know, she doesn't like being criticized for anything she does. So she um, had to make up for it on the second second try. So. <laughs> and you have to be so gentle giving feedback. Like, oh, no, no, I love it when my hair goes abruptly from a four to a zero. That's fine. Yeah, I'm a bit of a sook. So if anyone who saw the actual the video afterwards of when Mel uh, cut my hair, it was me just, yeah, moping around the house with this horrible haircut. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I also hear, I mean, clearly I've been getting some insider information, maybe from a little birdie called Mel. <laughs> Tell us about Tatoey. Oh, Tatoey, yeah. So <laughs> my, um, for those yeah, people who don't know, my fiance does eyebrow tattooing. So she had a tattoo gun at home and was bored just sitting around the house. So she decided to get her tattoo gun out and tattoo a character on the bottom of my big toe. So she was just keen to see just two little cross eyes for yeah for the eyes and little mouth. Uh, it didn't last that long. It lasted about three or four days. But, but a glorious three to four days, I can imagine it was, with <laughs> tattooing in, in the family. I mean, yeah, new, new addition, but he was, yeah, he's sadly missed. He's, he's departed us a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Reason, season, lifetime, right? Like some people come into <laughs> yeah. your life for, for just a short amount of time, but they bring joy. That's right. Well, that definitely did the job of humanizing you to start with for those who have only heard your many achievements and your service level titles. But the first section sort of continues on that path of just tracing back through all the chapters that came before the one that most people walk in on. So if anyone met you now, you know, walking into your life, it looks like you've got so much purpose. There's a growth strategy. You have goals and you wake up every day knowing what your reason to be here is. But nobody starts like that. And I love going all the way back to the beginning and showing people that nobody's pathway is linear. Most people go through phases of having no direction before they actually go through all the experiences that help them find what that is. Yep. So let's go through your way TA from very young Blair. And I actually read that you started at Yay High School, which is not <laughs> only on brand, but very exciting because the maternal side of my family grew up in neighboring town, Alexandra. Oh, wow. Okay. Big rivalry between Yay and Alexandra. So exciting. No one has heard of those towns. (laughs) Still exists today. (laughs) My beautiful memories of Yay are that we would go that way because if we went the spur way going up the Black Spur to Alexandra, I'd get super car sick and throw up all over myself. So Yay was kind of my throw up saviour, which is, you know, it's amazing. It's a nice way to be remembered. (laughs) I hope your memories are a little bit better. Tell us about those early days. Um, Yes, I was actually, I was born in Greensboro. So not ah, even suburbs, and then my dad was from the UK. He moved out here in in the sixties, um, and he, he always loved that that area of Victoria. So yeah, we moved up there when I was about I would have only been about two or three. Lived up there till I was about six, and then we moved to the UK actually uh, when I was six years of age. Wow. So moved to the UK. Um, my dad wanted to go home for for a while, so we did that. I lived over in the UK until I was about 10 years of age and then we moved back and then I basically went back to school up in Yay. So tiny little country town, only 1,100 people, really tiny little school. I, I do think back at like how to end up doing this after going to Yay High School. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a change and I definitely wasn't thinking about fake tan uh, when I was in high school, that's for sure. Yeah, it was all cricket, footy and basketball. But yeah, so yeah, I, I finished my school up there. I finished um, high school up there and then moved down to back down to Greensboro when I finished um, high school. I don't think there are many people who can say Greensboro is the big smoke. But uh, well, to me. <laughs> I can imagine that's kind of how it felt to you at the time. Yeah, it was definitely, that was a, a big step up uh, from <laughs> Yay, that's for sure. <laughs> but that's why I loved reading that you came from Yay High School. I didn't actually know that. And I don't think many people would assume that when they encounter someone heading up a huge global brand with operations at such a, you know, a large scale, you don't automatically think that this is a small town boy, you know, and I think other people who share that background or come from similar beginnings might believe that it's not possible for them to take that kind of pathway or, you know, might think that it would be a disadvantage to come from those kinds of beginnings. But what's even more interesting is that you didn't leave at the end of primary school. You you stayed in Yale till the end of high school and you still were able to go on and take a really global view on the world and have such great success. So I think that's incredibly reassuring and, and very inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting actually you finish that, that sentence on having a global view of the world. And I, I do have to credit, I think, a big part of the way I look at life to the, the, the four years I spent in the UK uh, with my family very early on. So I was very lucky to have two sides of the upbringing really I had that country um, upbringing which I think is country public company country they're generally quite down to earth and easy to get along with and but I think also then living in the UK um, and seeing the world at a very young age I did understand that there were a lot of opportunities out there and my dad definitely fostered that 
that belief in me and, and making sure I was always looking for the next opportunity or taking what's around uh, around us at the time. So that was, yeah, I guess there was two sides of learning that I, I grew up with, um, you know, seeing overseas very young, but also having those humble mm. upbringings of being, growing up in the country as well. Yeah, and I think that's always really interesting. There are so many formative moments when you look back to people's childhoods that helped give, you know, they were almost like sliding doors moments that sparked ideas that later it makes so much sense. But at the time, I'm so interested to trace back and like investigate how you put that together. Like once you actually finished school, got back to Greensboro, I think we all finished school with a very limited idea of what career pathways exist, let alone are available to us. Yep. What did you think then you wanted to be or could be and how did you get into the tanning world? As you mentioned, it is quite a big jump from gay high school to, to fake tan. How did that actually happen? <laughs> yeah, well, it definitely wasn't just one jump. There was, there was lots of little jumps in there. Yeah, I, I remember growing up, my mum used to tell me, I think that, you know, I think from 30 years of age through to 50, people generally have about 10 career changes within that time so I probably had that already between 18 and, and, and 30 to be honest so <laughs> yeah I was always I think I always had that mindset that whatever I did out of high school wasn't going to be my be all and end all um, I think I always knew there was going to be a progression in uh, in careers and it was an interesting time for me when I finished high school uh, my dad passed away during year 12 so it was a real my dad wanted me to go to university wanted me to be a doctor and that was really what he would have liked to see me do and, and I think that changed who I was a little bit mm. at the end of year 12. It's sort of my, as opposed to following what I really loved and, and the things that I knew were in, inherently I'd developed over the years, it, was, it, more, it became more about, you know, how do I honour my dad? How do I do the things that would make him proud? Yeah. Um, I didn't get a very good TR score at all. I only got like a 65 when I finished school. So it wasn't good. I, I, I didn't go to school for about three months after my dad passed away. Just wasn't interested really mm. um and then you know in high school particularly in your high school it was all about going to university you know a lot of the, the education at that point was, was solely about that and i think i think back about there really wasn't any other option it was either if you go to trade or you, you go to university like going off and doing what i've, I've done didn't really <laughs> seem much of an option back then it probably wasn't an option back then no no it's very different now so I did like the medical field and I was very engaged in sports as a kid. And so I did apply to, I guess, the one health-based degree that I could get into with that, with that level of score. And that was occupational health and safety with the plan that I would go there for a year, do really well, and then I'd move across and do physiotherapy. And that was you know, what, I, what I wanted to do. So yeah, I enrolled at RMIT in Bandura and did uh, one year. And I don't know, I think <laughs> after the first year, I remember going to university and everyone was getting all excited about their their assignments they've been doing and you know, how passionate they were. And it, it just didn't resonate with me at all. Um, I think I've always been a very creative person and I've always been a bit of a self-starter and always wanted my own thing. And I did that as a kid. Like I, I was always creating something to generate an income as a kid, whether it be setting up a stall on the side of the road or going selling some of my dad's stock every store in England or uh, I just wanted yeah I liked having that control about I could dictate where I go in life and then I just so I dropped out of that that course and I remember mum had the discussion with me she's like oh I knew you were going to drop out and I was, <laughs> I was kind of offended at the time and she's no, no 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 you're not meant to do that you're always you've always meant to do your own thing I've always pictured you doing your own thing and I think that was almost a bit of a, a bit of a reset there where it pushed me back into the, the course of mm. who I was. Like I was, I loved brands as a, as a kid. I'd always been obsessed with brands very early on. So, you know, the next stage for me was really I wanted to earn, earn money. Yeah. I went into real estate for a couple of years. No I did way. real estate for about three years. Yeah, I worked out in Eltham and Greensboro. <laughs> then I lost my license for speeding. So I couldn't, become, <laughs> couldn't be a real estate agent anymore. And I look back at that. There was almost those sliding door moments because what it, what it did do, the only job I could really do at that time was retail. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't have any qualifications. I was quite young. So I went back into the retail space and ended up working for a company called Global Rags. They were out in Blackburn. They had a few stores around the state. Um, and I used to look after a number of their stores. And it really brought me back to that brand retail product positioning, which I loved. And I, I actually really enjoyed selling product to people. And, you know, like mm. the brands that we had in your know, store were, were quite good. So I think that started to sort of rekindle that love of brand and everything that I had as a kid. Wow. Not long after that, I had, had another setback where mum passed away uh, oh, when I was bless. 23. So it was 
five years of real turmoil. It was really you know, up and down. Yeah. Um, and again, that was just a reminder that, you know, she encouraged me to do my own thing. And um, so I sort of took that on board when mum passed away. She left me a little bit of money and I opened uh, Body Bronze in oh, Port Oh, what a legacy for her to have started so, it all off for you. Yeah, it was really strange because, I mean, I didn't know anything about tanning beds, didn't know anything about tanning back then. I was actually looking at opening up a clothing store. I wanted to have my own clothing brand and my own clothing store. And that's what I was looking at the, the, the store for. And my brother made the suggestion, why don't you have a look at spray tanning and, and sunbeds? Um, because once they're set up, you know, there's, you know, to keep reinventing, you know, new designs and whatnot all the time, you can, um, you can go and open up other ones and there's, there's good passive income from them. So that was really my introduction into, into tanning salons. And then I, I still talk about it today that that opened in 2006, you know, I left that business in 2012 and it was six, seven years of customer research. Yeah. Really. It was about understanding and I still turn to those days and memories of consumer uh, customers coming through and how they talked about uh, tanning, what the issues were were so it was still you know i still rely on that customer research today of those hundreds of con- consumers coming through the doors every day oh and so that really led to that led to bondi sands you know it was started in that salon it started with me having to turn spray tan customers away because we couldn't fit anybody else in and i would suggest why don't you try centropay why don't you try latan and you're always getting this feedback of like oh that product stinks or it doesn't last long enough or the color's bad so it made me start to think what was the difference between a salon spray tan and what you could buy off the shelf. And I thought to myself, well, if I create a salon spray tan first and people like that, let's just adapt that to a self-tanning application. So that was the process. And then by 2012, we had three products ready to launch. Oh, um, price line. my gosh, what? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it has been a bit of a, a roller coaster and it's literally like one thing's just led into the next, into the next. But this is what I love, right? This is the bit that everything from that moment onwards has become the story that people know you for most. But the stuff before that, which is so formative and which clearly has led you to that point, doesn't get as much airtime. And that's why that part fascinates me because I had no idea about any of that. I mean, I've interacted and engaged with the brand for years. I've known you through mail and just had no idea of how many smaller baby steps happened before you even had the idea. And I love, there's so many things before we actually go into how you started, because I think that's also going from nil to a business idea is also something that gets skated over a lot. But I just love how much your story reminds me, firstly, that as children, our needs are so simple and unfiltered by anything. They're like, if we know what we like, we know what we don't like, we do what we like, and we just don't do what we don't like. It's just so simple. And then we let so many layers in adulthood of expectations, society, norms, legacy, other, you know, meeting other people's expectations and hopes and dreams for us. We let that cloud our judgment so much. And I think everyone has a moment where something happens and they take stock. And for many people, it might have not been until 2020 that they stop and go, I'm living for other people or other norms that aren't actually the thing I've always known was better for me. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I loved was that people tend to not look down on, but not truly believe that retail could lead you to somewhere wonderful, right? Like it's not often considered as a really promising, high-powered career path, but look where it led you. Like if you love retail, you can find a pathway that is absolutely life-changing for so many people and you don't have to wake up one day and go, like the, it's the only... It's not the case that the only way to start a business is by being incredibly passionate about a product. Like you didn't wake up and go, I'm so passionate about fake tan. Like that's not the way, that's some people's stories, but that's not every business story. I love that you just found a gap in a completely different way and not through you being like, oh, my Latan's just like not working on my skin. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was really, I look back at it and you're right. It wasn't like I was passionate about, about fake tan at the time. I definitely am now in terms of what we are as a brand, but it was more, I think what really excited me about Bondi was telling that, that Australian story and that Australian lifestyle. Um, mm. You know, I, I knew from a time spent overseas that people just resonate with the Australian lifestyle. And there's this aspirational view that um, people, particularly the UK and the US have of, of Australians. And I think that was, you know, I guess that branding side of me, which I loved about brand, was more about telling the story. Um, and that's what I still enjoy about the brand today is really telling a story and, and taking our consumers on that journey as well. It's not necessarily about the product. Mm. It's more about the story that surrounds it. But I think you're right. I, I look back at 
again, there's, I feel there's been a lot of sliding doors in my life. And I think that understanding at university wasn't for me. I think that if I'd stayed at university, yeah. maybe got the degree, gone into that career path, and then all of a sudden you're six to eight years down the track and this is your life now. Yeah. So I, I'm actually grateful that I didn't go any further with university because I think like you were talking about, well, then you start taking on other people's expectations. You commit to you know different jobs or different roles um, and then your own ambitions really start to get diluted a little totally. bit. Um, yeah. At that point, all I had was my own ambition and what I wanted to be in life. Um, so I went after that. And so I, I think at times education is great. But I don't think there's just one form of education. I don't think universities for everybody. Um, I think we can learn so much outside of schooling today. Totally. But um, there's obviously different education depending on what field that you're in. If you want to be a doctor, university is essential. Um, if you, <laughs> yeah, if it's not really like, optional. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to, if you want to build a brand, um, a business degree isn't essential. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, it's about understanding one category if you're passionate about it. You know that better than everybody else or anybody else. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things I look at. It's definitely a sliding door moment that um, could have gone either way. And I think that also really highlights the idea that I try and emphasise a lot, even though my career went very much the way it, it favoured me, the schooling system favoured the things that I was interested in, at least back then, in terms of, you know, get, becoming a lawyer and starting in, in that corporate context. I think that the way the education system is built does lead many people to misinterpret their own intellect because it values one type of intellect and not others, and then might lead them to not have the confidence to take other routes that embrace creativity as in intelligence rather than yep. academics. Yeah, I completely agree. I've had this discussion quite a few times over the last three to five years, I think. Um, yeah, if you look at the way the schooling system is set up, you've got, I suppose, the creative side, which I do believe that's probably the biggest, you know, if we have a superpower as humans, I think creativity is it mm. um, in terms of being able to visualise something and bring it to life and change the way the world currently operates and I think if you look at school predominantly creativity is aligned with say whether it be art class whether it be drama and then you've got the other side where it's you know potentially the physics and mathematics and traditional uh, sort of education and I think it's unfair to grade people on the same platform I don't think you know allocating a a points grading based on someone who does physics versus someone who's taken an art class, I don't think you can you can judge them in the same way. They're completely different processes. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't foster creativity, I guess, yeah, throughout schooling. And, and um, I don't envy the challenge of whoever has to figure out a way to actually even up that playing field, but it's you know, it's easy to to for us to comment on it from the outside. But I do think and I'm so, so glad looking at your story that that process of leaving uni and of getting sixty five in your you know, T R score didn't lead you to believe that you weren't smart enough to do anything else, that that didn't hinder you away from finding other ways to express your intelligence and creativity because obviously you did find a platform that allowed that to flourish rather than stifling it. I think actually at school I realised that I didn't fit education. I didn't fit schooling and that platform. Um, so I think that's why when I, when I got the 65, I was it didn't really phase me that much because I felt like I, I wasn't suited to that anyway and I, and I knew I was going to go down a, a different path. Yeah. I think for a lot of people out there, though, that, that could be very much a, you know, they, they could take that as a, as a negative yeah. uh, direction of life and, and could, I guess, sort of stifle their mm -hmm. development, I suppose, thinking that they don't fit in that space. But I think that's starting to change now. I think there's, there's definitely, you know, people are starting to realise that, you know, schooling isn't for everybody. So if I, if I had, if I could, if I would like to see one thing, I would like to see a bit more encouragement of creativity within mm. school though, because uh, at the end of the day, it makes everything better. Absolutely. And I think people also misinterpret creativity as being entrepreneurial only, not entrepreneurial. And it's finally coming around that organisations are understanding that, not all their employees are going to leave their job if you encourage creativity. They can just bring that creativity to their roles that they have within the company, which is for everybody's benefit. I'm glad <laughs> yeah. to be alive in this time where it's finally starting to filter through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So going back to the very beginning of building what is now an incredible empire and even more, I just have so much more love and admiration for the brand knowing how it came about. The beginning, I think, is often harder than anything that comes from there because that's where you do start from zero. You had no idea about starting a product brand, FMCG, how it worked, how to formulate tanning, like all that stuff is you're starting from complete a complete clean slate. How do you actually go from not having a business and having an idea to having a business? 
Did you Google how to get manufacturers? Did you figure out, you know, did you get a graphic designer? Like what are those tangible first steps? I think um, I've always found as I've evolved through my career, there's always been an evolution of what's come before. Mm. That first stage of I've always, when I opened the salon, I think I knew, like I always wanted to have my own business. Yeah. yeah, it kind of unlocked that that memory as a kid. That's what I wanted. So I think when I got in, when I opened my first business, uh, opened that salon, that was my first part of learning how to run a business. And granted, running a salon is a very simple business compared to Bondi Sands, but the fundamentals are very are there. You know, it's, it is about budgeting. It's about, you know, it's about managing your staff and, and, and making sure you offer the best product you possibly can. So my first learnings was really dipping my toe into having that salon first of all. So when you come then and, you know, we're again, going back to that retail environment, I was ordering stock every day. I was understanding what product worked, what they didn't. I understood margins and all of those things from operating that salon. So, you know, I wasn't starting from ground zero launching mm. Bondi. I understood a bit about tanning just through what was coming through my salon and, and using the products myself and my friends coming in and my mates <laughs> coming in for spray tans before a music event. <laughs> so oh I my God, understood. poor stereo. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days, yeah. Oh, the glory days. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of education that came through that business. And then really it was about, we did a lot of Googling. Um, in the very beginning, I knew what the brand positioning was going to be from day one. I, I guess I knew what the market was going to be. And that international Australian brand, that's what we wanted. That's what we saw the opportunity was before we even had the product. And yeah, that really came from, again, you know, previous experiences as a kid. When I was 15, 16, I played basketball in America a couple of times. And I remember going to, you'd turn up to play against these schools and there'd be a bunch of high school girls at the front waiting for these Aussie basketball team to turn up. And their, their perception, again, was this bronze dozzy. That's just what they thought we were. And that <laughs> stuck with me. So, you know, when I was thinking about a tanning product, that took me back to that moment. I thought, well, if we're going to take something to the world, we need to sell the Australian lifestyle. So once we had that brand identity, then we knew what our product needed to be as well. So it needed to replicate that that golden glow that you got from the sun, mm. but in a much healthier way. So from there, we started researching manufacturers um, and getting spray tan solution was is much easier than getting self-tanning products because the, the formulation is much different. Once we had that formulation, we had an introduction to a manufacturer here in Melbourne, which we still use. Um, and it was an important to be Australian made and Australian owned. Uh, we took that spray tan to them and said, we need to convert this output into a lotion and an aerosol spray. I remember they were almost telling us not to do it. <laughs> wow. They were like, we get approached by self-tanning products every day. Not many succeed. Yeah. Um, it was really like a very negative meeting, the very first meeting that we had and almost wow. like trying to push us away from doing it. Yeah, it's like, take my money, dude. Just let me do it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I think what, what made it different was that we knew what our product needed to be. We, we knew what the differentiation needed to be about our brand, the color output and, and everything else. So then, then that was really 18 months of formulations going round and round. All we thought about at the very beginning was just getting the product right. Yeah. And I think today that's what any new business owner should be starting with. Understand your brand, make sure your product is the best it possibly can be. I think we do live in a time where it's very easy to get platforms up and running and sell product. So people skip the brand development, the product development. And I think that at the end of the day, if you've got a strong brand and a great product that sells, you know, that's the only thing that matters. That's so valuable. I'm pulling so many big revelations out of this. <laughs> I think it's such an incredibly insightful and thought-provoking chat because I, I would actually like to sort of reel back on something that I've been saying for a long time on this podcast, which is that not the right way, but if you're really struggling to come up with your own idea for what you're passionate about, I often say to people, don't try and reverse engineer the lifestyle that you want. Find what you're really passionate about and build from there. But I I mean, this chat alone has kind of opened my eyes to the fact that you can reverse engineer. You can say, I want to be in business. I want a brand. I want to build an Australian-based product and a business that showcases the Australian landscape. And you did reverse engineer it, even though you weren't a fake tan user. And I love that that has opened up yet another pathway that can work if you do have all the right ingredients. And also that you guys started with one product. You didn't try and start with five ranges. You didn't try and start with a global enterprise that had 55 SKUs. Everyone has to get something right first. And I think another reason why we get very paralyzed in business is we try and get to the end very quickly. But spending 18 months to get one product out, that's 
such a good reminder that everyone does have to start getting one thing right first. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, obviously it took us 18 months in the beginning because we were working other jobs and yeah, that slowed the process down. And as a brand now, we do focus on, on speed to market, but it was important for us to get those first products right. Mm. We, we believed and we still believe that first interaction with a brand, with a, with a consumer, you never get it back. Yes. Yeah, that, that product is the most important thing that, that a company can ever produce. It doesn't matter how good your marketing is or um, your management structure or your online platform. If your product's not good, they may buy it once, but they'll never buy it again. Yeah. And brands are built on repeat purchase, not buying some new, new customers buying it once. Yeah. I think, you know, get back to that creativity side of it and that reverse engineering. I think a lot of the, what I think we do well at Bondi and when I personally, I think what I do well is be very aware about the surroundings of what's going on. I don't believe you can just create something. I don't believe you can just look at a category and say, I'm going to create this. Mm. You need to have some understanding, but a lot of the time you're surrounded by these ideas. It's just about being being um, your mind open enough and looking at things and just letting things filter through your mind because a lot of the times you are surrounded by these ideas. Yeah. You just need to be taking those things in. So for me, it was I opened the salon because I knew I, I wanted to be in business and I, and I that made sense to me to, to open that up. Then it was understanding what my consumers were asking for. I was able to take on board that these consumers wanted to go out and buy a self-tanning product, even though there was, you know, sell and spray tans, people, there was a desire there for this product. And it was really being aware enough to say, there's a demand of that product. There's a consumer base here that can't get what they're after and putting them together and saying, well, this is an opportunity. Yeah. So it's more about identifying opportunities, not product. So yeah. I think if you focus so much on product, you'll end up just replicating what's already in market. It's yeah. more about focusing on what opportunities exist and going after that. Well, that's another thing that I think people get deterred often because they so easily conclude that a market is saturated. And in this day and age, every market is saturated. There's not mm -hmm. very many things that you invent for the first time, Yeah, in, you know, 2020. But, Absolutely. But yeah. that doesn't mean that there's not a gap within that market that already has lots of players for you to do something that's tweaked slightly differently, which is clearly what you guys have done and has led to so much of your success. Uh, I think there's, there's always an opportunity. And the, the thing is about a cluttered market, it means that it's a good market mm -hmm. and there's a lot of activity in that market and there's attention on it so if you're wanting to sell into a retailer they're, they're going to be open to it no no retailer turns around and say oh that's cluttered we don't want to look at anything new yeah. they'll look at it and say well this is a great category there's plenty of activity in it we'd love some fresh blood yeah so yeah i think there's always and, and again it's i do this all the time and mel gets sick of sick of going to the supermarket with me but like i like to walk the aisles i'll, I'll walk every aisle and I look at everything. I look at everything from fly spray to dog food to whatever. And I look at what's missing on shelf. Is it a price point that's missing? Is it a brand position? Is it talking to a certain consumer? Yeah, good markets or you know cluttered markets, that's not a, not a bad thing. Mm. It's just about you need to get more innovative or look at something in a different way or look at some new ingredients or look at other opportunities. But totally. yeah, I think that's a, sometimes a cluttered market is a good opportunity. Absolutely. I think it proves there's, you know, there's obviously demand there, which is really exciting. But one of the things I also think is, incredibly cool about what you guys have done is from Body Bronze to Bondi Sands, you've helped shape the idea that being a beautiful bronzed Australian, that image is still there and the world is clearly, you know, still soaking that up. But you've been able to change it from tanning beds to sun care and you know, really leverage and help us all embrace the idea that being a bronze, beautiful Australian can be done a safe way. It can be self-tan. It can be something that doesn't necessarily involve any harmful exposure to the sun. But when it when you are going to go outside, you've also in 2018 launched a sun care line, which I think is an absolutely incredible extension of that philosophy of being able to still, you know, be the sun-kissed Aussie but in a healthy way. But before we get to that range, I would love to ask in the journey from that very first product to now 5,000 bajillion stores, huge celebrity names posting about you, just <laughs> unbelievable success. When did you feel successful? Um, like I'm not really a numbers person. I yes, love it's that. Nice to, it's nice to see, I oh, look, 30,000 doors or whatever it is. That's sort of checking a box. Yeah. For me, I think launching into the United States was definitely, you know, achieving a huge goal. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the biggest market in the world. Uh, it's the most difficult market to break into. We did it completely independently um, with no outside investment. Really? So no private equity or anything. We had the initial partners from day one. Uh, Sean and I as the, the directors, and we have a silent partner there who's invested along the way. 
but we did that from day one. So incredibly proud of that because a lot of brands that do go through international expansion do raise significant capital along the way. Mm. But I think one of the things I get the most excitement from and is we've got such a loyal fan base. When we launch a new product and you just see that excitement of people are just like, they just want to get it. That's what you do it for. That's well, that's what I do it for. I find that yeah. exciting and be part of my role at Bondi is creating new products and, and how do we bring them to market and, and grow the category. And then you see a competing brand may launch a product that is a bit of a knockoff <laughs> and you see our consumers jump to our defense and they're like, you just ripped off Bondi. This is that. You know, I think that's all you can ask for. If you have that reaction from your consumers, the money just follows. Some people are driven by the, the yeah, I guess the figures and, and the numbers for me. I just want people to enjoy our product. And if our product, I think a lot of the time, yeah, the money is a byproduct when you when you work towards, I guess, that goal. Mm-hmm. So they're probably the two. The, the US is definitely a huge achievement. Um, but just seeing that engagement that we have with our with our consumers. And I think we've got, you know, talking about numbers, I think we've got the last sort of bit of data that came out, we were uh, sitting at around 94% retention rate for our consumers, <gasps> for our retailers. So that's it's, insane. Again, yeah. And it's, I think that's what it comes back to what I was saying before. Everybody can sell a product once. Yeah. Um, but in this age where it is very competitive and every category is cluttered, retention is the only thing that matters. Totally. I, and I always find this question so interesting because even though the numbers are obviously incredibly important, very few people say it's the financial metrics that are their success measures. It's the community, it's the innovation, it's, you know, it's there's so many other markers, I think, and we get very distracted in the early days of our careers maybe by more financial-based metrics. But I love that now it's a byproduct and that's incredible. Are there any other moments where it's just blown your mind, like that would just like pinch me what the actual fuck is happening right now? Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you kind of don't. Sean and I talk about this all the time. Like we're saying, gee, we should actually celebrate some of this stuff a bit better at times. Like we we don't always. And we've always been, we're very competitive, Sean and I, and we want to compete with other brands and you know we have a, a rate of development I think which is un, unmatched with anybody in our category. So we're always looking to the next. It's like, okay, we're the number one brand in Australia. Okay, what's next? Got to get UK, got to get US. <laughs> so there's always the next step we're looking at. Um, the, the times that you get that moment, we go, gee, this is pretty amazing what you've done is when you, we might put a, a new um, retailer presentation together for a US retailer who knows, probably doesn't know that much about Bondi. And we do it, we put our timeline together and we say we did this and this and this and this. And it's when you look back at those moments and you go, wow, there's actually a lot there. If, if someone had come and said to me, this is what you'll do in eight years in the very beginning of Bondi, you'd go, oh, you're kidding yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'll put all of my $25 that I have in my bank account yeah. on the fact that that won't happen. <laughs> yeah, so we need to look back more and appreciate sort of you know, what we have been able to do. It's definitely hard to celebrate because you do get so just in the trenches of like, what's next? But yeah. I think then you realize if you if you don't, I mean, it, it passes you by. So I'm glad that you're at least focusing a little bit on, on the celebration <laughs> moments. Yeah. Tell us about the sun care and how that's become such an important part of the brand focusing on sun safety. And I think the world has really started to move in that direction as well. But I, I would safely say that you guys have helped shape that and make it more accessible and cool. I also love that from that, that very beginning in 2018, you're continuing to evolve the Suncare range. So the Hydra UV Protect range just came out this year, which is completely new from everything else and absolutely beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Glad you like it. Yeah, Yeah, there's just something about that blue that just makes me think of, you know, Bondi Beach, but turquoise water and it just transports you away to a tropical island. And, (laughs) yeah, I just I love it. And and it goes so well under makeup, which is so important. Yeah, that was one of the, the big directions for the brand. And that, uh, yeah, that that blue. I mean, that's it's uh, the Bondi blue that we've used from the very beginning, um, from our very amateurish um, first range of packaging that we did. Um, but yeah, blue's <laughs> obviously been a big part of our breath. If you don't cringe at your first packaging, I feel like you're doing something wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely cringe. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, I mean, sun care was something that we always it, it was in the works from the very beginning. Yeah, the Australian lifestyle is about enjoying the beach, enjoying the sunshine, and, and everything else. So sun care was something that we'd always planned to do. But when you looked at the categories, sun care was a far bigger category than self-tan, mm. much more competition, but self-tan and you had a couple of big players. So we thought this was our opportunity to get into the market with self-tan and build that following, build our brand equity 
before moving in, into into Suncare. So we actually launched the the original range in 2017 at Bondi Beach of all places um, in 2017, <laughs> and it was really about you know, coming back to that. I suppose that time around 2010, 2012, the Suncare message in Australia was really becoming quite strong. People were really starting to take on board the effects of, of UV light. I'd learned a lot, obviously, through the, the sun beds. So that was a, a big learning curve for myself, um, as well as you know, most Australians. And that's why we, you know, when we're producing the self-tanning products, we, we really focused on trying to create a product that mimics the way your skin would look like when you've been in the sun, because we knew that's what Australians wanted. They wanted to look like they'd you know, spend the day on the beach, even though they hadn't been. So that was a big driver for color. And then sun care goes hand in hand in that. So when you look at a retailer, the sun care category that includes self tan and sun care. So they're really bundled together within the retailers. Mm -hmm. So they really were hand in hand for us um, in terms of uh, product development and, and positioning. And Australia really is a leader within sun care. Um, and we're now using you know, that Australian lifestyle and that Australian credibility within the sun to launch our products into the UK and, and also into the US. I think now we're after our basic launch, what we had originally was just that, you know, core SKUs. Now we've moved into Hydra, as, as you mentioned, UV, UV Protect. And that's really designed to be an everyday sun care product that can be worn under makeup. It's a, you know, it was designed to be an easy product to use on a daily basis. So not greasy, has some extra skin benefits. Obviously, most of our consumers they're very much engaged in skincare and they want to make sure their skin looks and feels as good as it can. That was, I suppose, the first range where we really started to pull in some eco-conscious functions as well. So post-consumer plastics, making sure the, the packaging is all uh, completely recyclable. We brought in some ethically sourced algae uh, to increase hydration on the skin. So it's really about touching all those pillars that our consumers want to see from the brand. Mm, and that is really exciting. That was my next question actually was about the recycled plastics and the, uh, the algae in the product. Do you think that that's sort of the next big iteration for you guys is focusing more on sustainability or, or what else is next on the horizon for you? Um, sustainability is such a, you know, such a huge topic at the moment um, and every category has been touched. Yeah. Um, so I think if, if anyone's launching a new product, if they don't have a, a direction towards creating product that are sustainable, yeah. um, I think you're going to get left behind. We, we um, started looking at almost a bit of a, a retrospective view on the brand or the product offering that we had. So we end of last year, we started looking at all of our packaging and started looking at what changes we can make. Let's look at the formulations and let's start stripping out you know, any chemicals, ingredients that aren't sustainably sourced, yeah. aren't great for the skin, aren't great for our waterways. Totally. It's becoming a bigger, a stronger and stronger presence for the brand. You'll see pretty much like all of our products coming through post Hydra UV Protect will be made from post-consumer plastic and we're moving towards eliminating the use of embedded springs and trying to use single plastics throughout our range which allows um, or helps recycle the product a lot more efficiently. Most people will recycle um, and they think they're doing the right thing, but a lot of times we're, we're let down by local council, local governments, facilities around recycling. Yeah. So we're trying to make that as efficient as possible. So that was a process we started about 18 months ago, going through that review of everything in our products. And now we've really put that line in the sand that now moving forward, there's nothing else that will have, you know, virgin plastics or um, components that can't be recycled. Mm. Um, and we'll go through a full update of our uh, whole product range as well. So exciting. Next year, we'll look to launch our own foundation <gasps> as well, which is based around Amazing. supporting our waterways and, and our oceans and making sure that, you know, consumers are educated about what we're, what we're tipping down the drain and, and what goes into our waterways. I think that's another reminder again as well about baby steps. Like you can't expect to start a fully sustainable brand at the very beginning with a foundation attached and everything like again it's something that evolves in iterations and it, I think we often think you know you need to do big things but if you can't do big things just do small things in a big way until you can so I love that it's happened in steps and you're finally getting to the point where a foundation is on the horizon that's incredibly exciting and I've done what I always do and get so fascinated by the story that I make the first section <laughs> 5,000 times longer than the next ones but I'd love to quickly touch on your NATA along the way as well in amongst yep. all the highs there's of course lots of challenges challenges and one of the things that I think in a market that you're not a new you're not one of the sole entrants to when you first enter there's a lot of comparison that can often lead to self-doubt and then in that productivity pressure that a lot of us put on ourselves i.e not celebrating anything and just keeping going there's also burnout overconnection, having a business that's based on 
you know, social media and digital platforms can be very consuming. So what have they been big challenges for you? Are there any other things that have come up for you? Yeah, I think um, I think you come up against most of those issues. Yeah, you know, self-doubt is something that I, I um, struggle with on a, on a daily basis. Um, and I, mm. from a personal level, have for a long time. Public speaking was something for me that was a incredibly scary thing in, in high school. I would literally do anything to get out of a day of school so I didn't have to do a presentation um, <laughs> and to the point where it was literally a fear. Yeah. And that continued all the way into my early 30s. Um, and then when you're putting in, a, putting, combining that with trying to build a brand within a space that is competitive, there is a lot of self-doubt. You know? But I think what we've done to get past that is understand this category better than everybody else mm-hmm. and make sure that anytime I are presenting this, you're completely prepared and almost like you've run the scripts in your mind before you're actually getting up there and delivering a, a presentation or a pitch or a speech or whatever it may be. But yeah, in terms of self-doubt, in terms of the brand capabilities and what we're bringing to market, we don't have a lot of self-doubt. We're a very confident team. Um, you know, we've been innovating the self-tank category and uh, driving the category for a number of years now. So we do see ourselves as a leader and we're confident about doing that. Um, self-doubt generally comes from a, a personal standpoint. Um, mm. So it's almost like a bit of a, oh, I can't remember the actual the name for it. When you, you constantly doubt, you feel like you're... Imposter um, syndrome? Imposter syndrome, that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> I got suffer from that badly. Yeah. yeah see, isn't yeah. that just fascinating? I mean, almost everyone who comes on this podcast, that's the first thing they say in this section is imposter syndrome. And I think there's also quite a common and maybe maybe accurate perception that it affects women a lot more than it does men. But it's fascinating to know that even at your level and even with all the incredible metrics and years of success now behind you that prove that you're not an imposter in this market, if anything, you are leading it, that you still face it. And I have learned to never hope that it goes away because if anything, it reminds me and it's a good indication that I'm not getting complacent, but it's just that you don't follow it through to believing that you don't actually deserve yeah. to be there. I think it's not hoping it will leave, but just learning to to work with it. I almost feel like it's a, it's definitely a positive in, in, in the way you take it on um, because you know what, mm. you're never going to be the best at everything. So there's always going to be these moments where you go, oh, I didn't deliver that as well as I would have liked or yeah. oh, I could have done a better job on that. They would have done better. They're, all, they're the moments that make you go, okay, next time I do that, I'm going to do it better. So I think if you don't have that level of self-questioning and um, and questioning where you are good enough, I don't think you're going to have that growth and development. If you already think that, oh, yeah, I've got this, I am what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm meant to be and all those things, <laughs> you don't have the vision to grow. So it, it's... It's not a nice feeling, but it does lead to um, a positive direction. Yeah, totally. I think it plays a really important role. Uh, and I would worry if I woke up one day and was like, yeah, I got this. I'd be like, who, yeah. who are you? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about burnout? Do you find that incessant need to be there and be everything in the business? Like, obviously, as you grow, you have to learn to delegate to be able to grow beyond just yourself and sort of a home startup. Have you found navigating, preserving your energy and being pulled in all different directions and also having to be kind of the face of the brand as well as actually running it? I think that's also a very new development for business owners in this day and age that they have to do a bit more front-facing kind of work. It gets very exhausting. So how do you manage that? Yeah, I think um, it's it's one of the things of a successful brand, I think, is getting to the point where you can take a step back and allow um, your team to do more you know that's why you bring these great people in mm. because you know about their ability so you you bring them in so you can oversee more of it and you can give guidance but you, you you need to have confidence in your team that's why you've got them there yeah. in the beginning um you know sean and i we did everything there's only two of us so we did everything from product design point of sale design formulations marketing retailer relationships all of that we did the whole <laughs> thing so that is very in the early days. Yes, burnout is, I think, is quite common, um, and there's a lot of stress because you, you're new. You need to prove yourself. But I think that you know, for a brand to be successful, it's about identifying the gaps that you have in your own ability and making sure you bring in those people that fill those gaps in your own ability mm-hmm. and then rely on them. I got to the point, I think I was a bit of a, I can go back 2015, 16, I may have been a bit of a keyboard warrior. You know, you're just sitting there, <laughs> you almost gauge yeah, your workout for your success on how many emails you were sending in a day. That was a phase that I, that I went through and look back at it now and I try to send less emails now. It's more about, just pick up the phone and have the conversation yeah. um, as opposed to 
you know, sitting there and typing an email because it just yeah. just takes so much time. Yeah. Um, and that's something I learned along the way. Then obviously leaning on those people around you. Yeah, totally. I think um, that leads really nicely to the last section, which is play TA. And this is where we unravel our productive identities from who we actually are underneath all of that. Because I think, you know, we all go through a phase where we're so caught up in output and doing and being busy. And, and when you strip it back, it's sort of like, oh, who actually am I? You know, you're not just meant to work and die. That's just, it's not the point, mm-hmm. except that we do sometimes, you know, fall into living our lives that way. And I think this year has been a wonderful, you know, as horrible as, it, as it's been, one of the silver linings that I hope many people will have been able to take is to have the chance to stop and and think, you know, what identity do I have outside of productivity? So who is Blair outside of Bondi Sands? How have you cultivated play and things that you do that aren't to you know, get better at, improve, to teach you something, to achieve at. I even get like that. I say it all the time. I get like really productive about rest and I'm like, am I high achieving at rest? Like, am I getting an A plus on my rest this week? (laughs) It's very hard to find activities that just help you forget what time it is. So yeah. What do you do just for fun? Before I get into this, like it's probably, it's a tough one for me to separate, to be honest. Like (laughs) I know it's the answer that you want, but it's a hard, uh, it's a hard task for me to separate brand and my business from what I do because I enjoy it. Yeah. Like, and but the bit that I enjoy the most is the creation, the creating of something new. So, yeah, Mel will always say, like, all you talk about is work. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's not about work. It's about, well, new business ideas. Like, I'll be walking down the street and I see a concept and I, and I go, oh, you could do this so you can create that or whatever. So, I find that hard to separate. Yeah. That's something that is just, you think is, is just who I am. Um, and I enjoy that creation. But when I mm. do get away from, that part of my life. I got into, started boxing 2017, ah. something I wish I did much earlier. Yeah. It's not just the, the physical exercise of it. It's more about the, the technique, um, the thinking that goes around with it. Um, and it, it's one of the few activities I do where I don't think about anything else at all. It's just that you've got to be present, yeah. um, particularly if you're doing any sparring or any of that sort of stuff, you, you can't be thinking about anything else. So that's something that gives me a, takes you out of my everyday life. Yeah. There's not a lot of sports that are like that, I think, where yeah. it takes so much mental capability. Totally. Um, the other area of my life which um, I'm trying to make more time for is, is there's a lot of things that I love in my life. And, you know, sport was something I grew up with. Um, basketball was a, a love growing up. Cars is also uh, cars, <laughs> racing. But um, I recently joined the advisory board for the uh, Southeast Melbourne Phoenix basketball team. Um, <gasps> Amazing. Yeah, so that was something that, it's been an amazing experience. Um, you know, spend some time with some uh, amazing, successful people, and it feels like you're you're helping that team get off the ground, and and you you are you know, sharing some of your experiences. So I think that's what I'm going to look to do some more of because it's incredibly rewarding, and it's it's in line with something that I've always loved. It's interesting that you said this. Is probably not the answer you want. That was the perfect answer. I feel like it's harder to take a break when you love what you do. When you don't love what you do, there's an incentive to stop. You want to clock off because you're like, Ugh, I'm not loving this. When you love what you do, there's no incentive to rest. And when it's your own business, it's even harder because you see the direct result of your labor. So I think when you do love your job, you're more prone to just being totally consumed by it. But I found that my best ideas or my most clarity that I've ever gotten has been after I've not felt like I needed it or wanted it, but forced myself nonetheless to get some distance. And that's why the hobbies are usually things that are totally mutually exclusive with any other thinking because anything short of that and I'll be like, oh, there's a new idea for a superfood. Oh, look at that yoga class. Oh, look at that font. I want that <laughs> yeah. font for my thing. Like everything in life <laughs> is an idea. So I, I think that yeah. was... I think that's the mind of an entrepreneur, I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so all yeah. our hobbies are like complete brain. Yeah. Like you can't do anything else at the same time. <laughs> and I do think at times I, you know, I think to myself, oh, I'd love to do something in the fields I love. And then I'm like, oh, do I want to do that? Am I going <laughs> to you know, turn them from a hobby into something that becomes work? Do I really want to do yes. that? Or I just keep them completely separate? Even though I'd love to work in, whether it be something to do with automotive or you know, the sports field potentially, but do I want to muddy those waters? I don't know. And I think sometimes for some people, turning their passion into their profession does muddy the waters when they have a brief and they have deadlines. They're like, oh, the joy's gone. So I, yeah. I think there is something to kind of, quarantining parts of your life for pure pleasure and not 
necessarily making it a vocation. Yeah. Uh, another thing I'd love to ask, particularly for this year, is I know you and the beautiful Mel have had to postpone your wedding, which is A, so exciting that you guys have a wedding on the cards, but B, I think there are a lot of other couples who have struggled yeah. with the grief kind of of not having the year this year that they expected. How have you guys dealt with that and found little moments of joy in between and do you have any advice for other couples who might have had to move their wedding back as well um it, yeah that's a yeah we, we were actually so close to having the wedding too i think we were when lockdown happened that was february we planned to have our wedding in uh end of in august so it wasn't too far away um yeah. and for us it was yeah there was added complexity because we were looking at having an overseas wedding in italy so yeah it was incredibly depressing at the, at the time mel definitely gets it gets to mel uh, a lot and yeah, yeah so we, we did we decided to push the wedding back one year whether we can still have it next year i don't know um yeah, yeah still waiting to see what, what happens there at the moment we just keep focusing on well i kept saying to mel we've got november december let's get this year over and done with let's focus on it's in january let's assess it at that point yeah. um at the moment there's no point you know, worrying, we've got enough to worry about, there's enough going on. Um, there's no point putting further stress on something we don't have any impact on right now. So let's review it in, in January. So it's kind of like, Great advice. we know it's there. Um, we just, what you can't change, there's no point worrying over. We just, we'll, you know, we'll set a date and we'll address it at that point. But yeah, I think that's really all you can do. I think people just need to be a little bit easier, you know, a little bit softer on themselves. Totally. I think it's things like that, at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. It'd be nice to have, you know, we want to have the wedding and we're excited to do it. But, you know, I think your, your mental health is more important. So it's just no point stressing over something. Such great advice. And the wait will make it all the sweeter when it finally comes around. Yeah, exactly. I know you guys are also living on beanbags at the moment as you've moved yes. into a place that has no furniture. So what yeah, are you yeah. doing in your spare time? Are you watching? Do you guys watch Netflix? Please tell me you do something sort of dumb and what, like just letting the brain go. Suits. <laughs> yeah, and I've never watched it. Oh, gone on about it for years. And I was like, I tried to watch it a couple of times and it wasn't, yeah, this is boring. But then once I got into it. Now I'm obsessed. So I love suits. We, we before that we were watching Dexter, um, oh, which yeah. so Mel loved that, and she was happy to go through the whole season again. So Dexter and Suits have been the one that I've definitely watched. Nice. Um, okay, yeah, so you're a no, human. You're a normal human that watches TV. Uh, That's fine. I feel yeah, better. Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah, not a lot. Um, but yeah, during lockdown, you really haven't had a lot of choice to do. You run out of activities otherwise. But totally. yeah, sometimes those series are just like everybody get binging, and all of a sudden night's gone three a.m. I know, but you've been through such an emotional roller coaster with all the characters, right? So it was a great night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Second last question. What are three interesting yep. things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? And you can't use Tatoe because we already did it. Oh, right. Yeah, well, um, we've probably used one of them already, which was living in a tiny country town with 1,100 people. I think Yay High School definitely yeah, counts. Yeah, 1,100 people in four pubs. <gasps> I can believe it. And no body bronzes, obviously. Yeah, just shows <laughs> not much to do in a country town. Uh, and I actually grew up playing the violin, which is probably <gasps> what most people don't know. That's great. Don't ask me to play now. I couldn't play now, I don't think. But when I was a kid, I, I don't know why I wanted to play the violin. Just, do you have a violin still? You should get one. Not, not anymore, no. But oh. my mum was always like every Every time she'd see um, someone playing the violin on TV or on a concert, she's like, oh, that could have been you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I'm actually pretty happy with my global empire. It's fine, but thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they're probably the, the two that I could probably think of, I think. They're um, great. Mm. Anything else? A third? What do I have on my files? Oh, I've got one. Every single day you buy a fruit salad and you don't eat it. <laughs> That's a good one. We're talking to Mel, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I think she exaggerates. I think I have. A, I definitely buy a fruit salad every morning, but I might eat it every second day. Yeah, what, but that's still not a very high percentage. I mean, what's that about? I don't know what it is. I, I like to have a morning routine and then sometimes <laughs> I want to eat it, sometimes I don't. I get on a call and then it's like lunchtime and it doesn't get eaten. Is um, it the melon? I feel like the melon always ruins it for me. I'm like, why? No, the berries not, were on top, the melon's just filler. Gross. No, I love, the, I love all the melon and all, all the Oh, things you love it. the melon. Oh, mm. God, I'll keep so, it yeah, next time. I, I don't know what it is. I can't explain why I do it. I think I just get preoccupied and sometimes just, it's not something you want to do, so I just can't be bothered eating it and then it goes <laughs> then it goes bad so yeah no one criticizes me about that every day yeah that was the first thing that came up the other one was that you buy the paper you have to buy the paper and read it and then you get really angry at it yep uh, yep. Yeah, through, through COVID, <laughs> and not just one paper. I was buying every paper because I wanted to read the positioning of each of the papers. You want the full spectrum. Yeah, 
yeah good yeah and I was I was getting very agitated <laughs> what was going on so I mean you did have a bad haircut so I understand the agitation it's fine yes we'll, we'll yep. give you that <laughs> <laughs> and the very last question what's your favorite quote um I've actually got I've actually got a couple if that's okay because yeah, they're different. Of course. Right. So I love Steve Jobs, like a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do like his quote, uh, yeah, that the people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world usually do. So it makes me feel like, yeah, if you have a crazy thought, it doesn't mean it can't come true. And a lot of the time it could end up in something great. And I also love Richard Branson. So he said if somebody offers you an amazing, amazing opportunity that you're not sure if you can do it, accept the opportunity and learn how to do it later. Such a good advice. I like that. And then another one, which is from Richard Branson, I think touches on what you were talking about earlier, um, is as soon as something stops being fun, it's time to move on. Oh, yes. And life's too short to be unhappy. Um, so, yeah, I think that's yeah something that is quite close to me. They're amazing. Did you know he threw um, me a bachelorette party last year on NECA? Really? <laughs> yes. That's awesome. So so talking about never letting go of the fun, he he's 70 and he got dressed in a toilet paper dress. You know the competition for bachelorettes where you have to dress the brides in toilet paper? Yeah. We had two fashion designers there, so we got one each and they dressed us in toilet paper dresses. He put his wife's lipstick on and walked down the aisle and we got married. <laughs> it awesome. was amazing. Thank you so much for joining, Blair. This was absolutely wonderful. I'm so excited for what is in store for Bondi and you guys next year. Thank Great. you for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you guys have seen how much of a fan I am of Bondi Sands and getting that bronze glow without baking in the sun, but hearing a founder open up always gives me such a greater attachment to a business. I can never be reminded too many times about the importance of taking baby steps, that everyone has a backstory, and that there's no such thing as a conventional pathway. I go on such random tangents. I mean, we spoke about the toe tattoos for a good 10 minutes, but I hope you love those parts of the show as much as I do. After all, it's not all about our productive learning identities. Please do share and tag at Blair James underscore at Bondi Sands or myself so we can reshare and keep growing this beautiful neighborhood. And don't forget the weekly giveaway for the best share. I'll sneak some Bondi Sands goodies into this week's prize pack. Hope you're having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay.